0: Good morning. Uh, welcome uh, to Church of the Redeemer. My name is Jason. Um, so over the past uh, several weeks, we've there's been almost this like running joke of the um, the time that we made uh, Laura read Nehemiah three in front of the um, First Baptist Church folks. Um, as we come to Nehemiah seven, the passage is um, longer, more names, and then add in numbers which is what everyone loves to hear, just read publicly. And so uh, today, I'm going to read for us just the first uh, four verses. Um, uh, I'm going to read uh, beyond that, actually. but um, So I'm going to read the first five verses, I think. Um, hear this, the word of the Lord. When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, "'Do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot, and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes.'" The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had yet been built. Uh, But the Lord put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first, and then uh, the chapter goes on to recount uh, the record that he had found from, it's exactly the list from Ezra 2, Uh, the word of the Lord. So tomorrow, uh, by the way, happy Father's Day um, to all the fathers. Today is Father's Day. Um, We didn't do any sort of special sermon or gifts or anything for Mother's Day and you know, because of equality, um, (laughs) I felt it was right to to not do that again for Father's Day. (laughs) Equality, you're welcome. So tomorrow is June 19th, which is also known as Juneteenth. Uh, Two years ago, it became a federal holiday. Um, It's been celebrated in our nation for uh, over 150 years, and Juneteenth celebrates the day that the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed um, the slaves in the Confederate States, sort of reached the the farthest uh, areas of where it had sort of been held out, in Texas, where um, the troops hadn't got there, word hadn't got there. And so... um, it wasn't until June nineteenth, 1865, two years uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation, that um, soldiers arrived in, in parts of Texas and said, uh, the slaves have been freed. This week, as I studied Nehemiah 7, and I just thought about and was hearing about Juneteenth, the, the parallels between these two stories just sort of struck me as kind of amazing, Um. If we think about in, uh, in, in the context of American slavery, the slaves had been taken from their homelands, families systematically dismantled, language and culture stripped away, basic human dignity denied as these people were reduced to essentially their market value as producers. And then suddenly, they were emancipated. But as wonderful as this, this freedom was and this level of freedom, it was just the first step on a really long journey as the people had to rebuild uh, from the rubble of what was looking uh, in front of them, what they were looking at in front of them. So in many ways, the, the last 150 years of the black experience in, in this country has been an, an effort to take some rubble Shattered families and cultures, and a diminished sense of their own value, and to make something of it. The celebration of Juneteenth is this annual reminder that there was a first generation that came out of slavery, and even though we may or may not know their names and their stories, they they set out and started building, and they took risks. They invested time and money and energy toward building a better life for the next generation. And every year, this celebration also reminds people that the work that began with that first generation uh, continues. The work is not completed. And so, exactly like those Jews that came out of exile, it was a work of recovering things like festivals and texts and traditions that had been nearly lost. And they're trying to piece together a culture, a language, an identity that had been sort of stripped away systematically over years of captivity. And I would just commend to you um, Esau Macaulay's work on the traditional black church is a, just a really wonderful example of uh, him trying to think about what resources we have been given over the, uh, the history of this tradition. So the similarities between the Jews who heard the edict of Cyrus and her, could return back to Jerusalem, and the, uh, the slaves that heard that the, the Emancipation Proclamation allowed them to start building a new life as free people just stood out as really significant this week. But then as I thought more about it, I started to realize that maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised to see these commonalities because there's a common thread that I think uh, these two generations share that we also share with them and that is true of all generations. And it's the thing that I want us to see today in Nehemiah 7. And so, so this is it. This is what I want us to see. God calls his people to intergenerational faithfulness, which means that we will plant seeds That we will not live to harvest. So, right here off the top, I have to cite my source. I've taken this phrase, intergenerational faithfulness, from Ben, Mr. Reynolds here. So, you know, he didn't write a book that I can cite or anything, but this is a a drum that Ben has been uh, sort of uh, pounding for some time intergenerational faithfulness. And I say to that phrase, yes and amen. And then this text that we're gonna look at today calls us to this kind of faithfulness. Um, the similarities, what, what we see in Juneteenth celebrations and what we see in the experience here in, in Nehemiah 7 um, is that we live and work, we all live and work in an in-between time. So we build on a foundation that is given to us by generations in the past and we continue to work in a way that we will give to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren uh, our own work. That means we're planting seeds for a harvest that we may not live to reap. So we look back and we honor our fathers. There we go. (laughs) There it is. We honor our fathers and our mothers by looking backwards and building on what they give us. And then we look forward by spending our lives and our energy and our resources planting seeds for a future generation. All right, so in order to see that this is what's going on in Nehemiah 7, we have to start at the beginning. So we began here, verses 1 through 4 says, When the walls had been rebuilt, the doors had been installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hananiah in charge, along with Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. Um, Then, uh, just skipping down a little bit, he stations the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, some at their homes. And then verse 4 says, The city was large and spacious, yet there were few people in it, and no houses had been rebuilt yet. So if you can imagine Nehemiah as a novel, and you're reading it, and the spine is cracked right down the middle, and you've got about half the pages in your left hand and half the pages in your right hand, you'd probably be wondering what is this book about? I thought it was about building a wall. And halfway through this story, the wall's built. The doors are in place. The guards are set. Then we've got singers and Levites. Isn't this book about building a wall? And yet here, halfway through the book, the, the wall's finished. And I think that, like, as much as we would be reading a novel thinking, well, what's the point. What's happening? What's going to happen? I wonder if the people uh, experiencing this also kind of expected something to happen. They expected a climax at this point. Maybe a a glory cloud coming down to fill the temple. Or maybe like right when they sort of locked that last door into place, they expected to hear like a trumpet uh, in the distance as like David's descendant rides over the hill with this company of people. I don't know, but nothing happens. There's just a gate swinging silently, and they kind of look around, and it's, the work's done, but the place is kind of empty. So instead of a climactic, here he is, everything has happened the way we thought, we read this instead. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. No houses had been built yet. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical records of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. So I want us to look at a, a couple pictures that uh, that Trent is going to show us. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure you have your own experience with these, uh, with, with this kind of thing, but there, there were these, these surreal experiences during COVID lockdown. Did you find yourself in a place that should have been populated and it was just empty? (laughs) Trent gestured like you should be seeing it. I mean, so I assume that we all have these experiences. Whether it was like a commute at 9 a.m. on Monday and just like, what is happening? Where are the people? Or maybe wandering around Kroger just thinking how bizarre it felt. So I think it's something like this was going on at this point. Jerusalem is rebuilt and it's large and spacious, he says. Just the city pictures. There are two of them. Thank you. And then you can go on. You can take it down. So they haven't rebuilt their homes. That's for later, Trent. I want us to feel this tension that they felt. The temple's there with an altar. They've got walls, gates, singers, Levites, people in charge, leadership, guards. But as they look around, they say, well, how do we get the people to return? And I, I don't know if you can feel that, but I hope you can, because it's how I feel a little bit about our church. Like, we've got walls, which wasn't always true. <laughs> well, like, kind of true, borrowed walls. They're still borrowed, I guess. We've got leaders and singing. What a wonderful time. I mean, great is thy faithfulness. It just uh, You guys' voices, it was incredible to sing that with you guys. And isn't there this kind of sense of like this tension of like, well, what now? Like the people in, in Nehemiah, I would like for like a glory cloud to come fill this place. For God to send like a revival that would be spoken about for generations. That's all I want. <laughs> How about you guys? But in, within in this tension is, is where Nehemiah says let's have a census. (laughs) He looks around at this empty city and it's almost like he's saying, but where are the people? Didn't like 42,360 people come out of exile? Where are their grandchildren and great-grandchildren? And so then he goes on for the rest of this chapter to read the record of those who came out of exile. He basically is reading Ezra 2. So this passage establishes Nehemiah in his time in this generational moment where he's looking back and remembering the names of those who came out of exile, who invested their lives, their money. They believed in a vision of rebuilding this city, and they spent their lives doing that. But something between that generation that came out of exile and what Nehemiah is seeing doesn't quite match up. The work is finished, but then he looks around, and it's like he's saying, where is everybody? So he decides to take a genealogical census. Essentially, he's comparing those who came out of exile with those who were there. So, I mean, you can open it and look. It's it's a long section of just names and numbers. And so he's like, Perosh's descendants, there were 2,172 of them who came out of exile. Like, who's here now? Who's of Perosh? And then uh, yeah, this is why I didn't want to, like, put anyone to the task of reading this. Like, Stephanasha's descendants. Who's with Steph? <laughs> there were 372. Who's left? How about Aura, right? Like, and so it's like, where are the descendants of these people who came out of exile? Nehemiah can't really reconcile what he's seeing with the record that he knows from history. So he performs an audit. <laughs> And this gap between 42,000, uh, which which Nehemiah knows came out of exile, and the, the reality that he's looking at is, is this, this 90-year gap that I think calls us to think about our own work and our call to intergenerational faithfulness. So we need to consider this. How would you feel if it, I told you that in 90 years there would be a meeting of people in this room, and they said where are all the Redeemer church people? There were like 30 who gave time and money and invested in this thing. And there were singers and preachers, and there was a whole lot of excitement about what God was going to do through them uh, in the community. And they look around and they say like, are there any Hudson's here? I don't know. I could go down the list. Put your name in. It's too, I don't want to, I want to keep my eyes dry. And I think that we all want our work to matter. I think the the picturing that hurts because we want our investment to mean something. And we we want our kids and our jobs and our church and our relationships and the things we give ourselves to to mean something. We want to be a part of a story that's larger than us and that somehow makes sense of our lives. So there's this stereotype that I'm sure you know about millennials. Millennials... They want their their work to be fulfilling. they think that somehow their their job should express something about themselves should be more than just a career. it's all very snowflakey. <laughs> so I, I've thought about this quite a bit because I, so I was born in 1983, which puts me right on the border of the millennials. And so frankly, I don't care a whole lot about generational talk, and I think it all gets way overblown, but I've thought about this one aspect of it because I want my life to be meaningful. I want my work to do good in the world, and I want somehow my work to align with my own interest and uniqueness and skills in a way that expresses the way God has uniquely made me. So I've thought, like, is this, am I just a millennial? But I don't... (laughs) But I don't, think, I don't think I feel these things because I'm a millennial. I think it's because I feel some deep resonance with how God made Adam and Eve, who were made uh, to, to build something beautiful out of God's creation, in these unique ways that he made them sort of the same but different. And, and their difference brings such creativity to their work. And I think that it was all aimed at an end that God was using their work to bring about. And so, as I've wrestled with this, I think it's good that we should want our work to matter and to be meaningful in some uh, in in some in some ways that reflect how God has uniquely made us. It's a good thing, and we've all seen and we know that this sort of search for uniqueness and significance ha- can go too far. But what I want us to consider today is that in its most redemptive sense, this desire that we feel is really a longing for a paradise that's been lost. And so the desire is good, but I also think this passage in Nehemiah helps us make sense of a couple ways that this good desire can go wrong. For the past couple of centuries in, uh, in our sort of Western society, I think we've toggled between two dominant attitudes toward our work and what gives it meaning the one that's sort of been sustained uh, really since the Enlightenment is the progress myth. You want to say it with me? Progress myth. It teaches us that our work and our lives have meaning because they are a part of a great human triumph. That through science and technology and democracy, we can create a better world. But this attitude of the progress myth has a counterpart, and, and I think maybe we're sort of dipping into this now, and that is following periods of catastrophe or setback or frustration, there can be almost a nihilism that sets in. When we start to see that the progress we're looking for may not be coming, and it's actually done some damage in our world, we start to enter a kind of despair that says, so just eat and drink and be merry. And I think if we look, it's not difficult to see both of these attitudes at work in our world today. So what we see in Nehemiah, and I think actually in as we zoom out and see in all of Scripture, these two attitudes are challenged. Scripture is forward-looking. There is progress, and yet it isn't the kind of progress that comes through a triumphalism of human work and ingenuity. And so it's a subtle difference, but it's very important. The Bible doesn't call us to trust in human work to bring about our desired tomorrow but instead it trusts in God to graciously bring about in our work his own kingdom. So intergenerational faithfulness requires a hope that neither despairs on the one hand or or is triumphalist on the other hand. So against this progress myth, it calls us to surrender our control, not just because one day we're going to die and leave it to somebody else, but it calls us to do our work in a kind of surrendered-to-God way, that we plant seeds and water and weed, but all along we trust God with the harvest. I think the hard part about this, about working in a way that we um, are trusting God with our significance and the outcome of our work, is that we want to see it. We don't want to be like Moses, who led the people through the wilderness for 40 years and then dies watching the backs of everyone he's been leading walking into the promised land, the very thing that he'd longed for, for that whole time. And yet, the, the undeniable truth is is that when our time comes and we get planted in the ground, we will have projects left undone. We will leave our work to the next generation. And then we don't know, and can't guarantee that in 100 years there won't be a meeting to say like, what, "Where did we go wrong? How did things get kind of wonky? Where are the people?" And the key, I think, to trusting God with this kind of work to future generations is to know that God sees you and to trust that God will make something of your work in his grace. He will bring your work into his larger story of redemption. So after this long litany of names and numbers of the people who came out of exile, uh, we read this in verse 70. Some of the family heads contributed to the project. The governor gave 1,000 gold coins, 50 bowls, and 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family heads gave 20,000 gold coins and 2,200 silver minas to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. The priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns. These men and women were faithful, and they gave a lot. One thing uh, I heard said it was the equivalent of $15 million. I'm always like, how do you, I don't know how you do that math. And they're like, adjusted for inflation. (laughs) We know that they gave a lot. They took a significant risk. Remember that Nehemiah, when he left uh, Persia, well, yeah, so when he left to go to Jerusalem, he asked for letters to allow him to pass safely. And he had a guard. But these people left without letters and without a guard to go. um, They took a big risk just traveling back to Jerusalem. And they gave large sums of money. But now that generation is dead. And what do, we, what do we make of all of the risk that they took and in their, in, their investment and in their work? And I don't, I don't want to paint a really gloomy picture because they have something to show for it, right? There is a temple. But we have to ask whether it's been successful. All of this investment and hope in a renewed Jerusalem hasn't come to pass in the way that they might have wanted. And I want us to see in these list of names at least one thing that we can see, and that is God sees them. God knows their work. And God doesn't waste their work, but he redeems it by bringing it into his own story. So if I was um, grading Ezra, Nehemiah, which m- most scholars think was like one scroll at one point, right? And it was like, Ezra, Nehemiah, what do you think? I would just strike through Nehemiah 7. And I would write in the margins, redundant. (laughs) Why not just say, and then we remembered the 42,000 that came out of exile. The same two lists of names in one book. I don't know if you've ever done this. I've read a book once and it had like, it was almost like a, a typographical error where they had accidentally like had the same phrase twice. That's what it feels like is going on here. But I think what it shows us is that God cares about people with names. That God doesn't treat us like one of a number of people. We learn this lesson from Hagar, Abraham's Egyptian servant, who is in the wilderness about to die, and God sees her, saves her, and she gives God the name El Roy, the God who sees me. There are all kinds of people in the Bible who play important roles but don't get named. The story of Joseph in his ascent to Egypt a man plays an essential role and he is just a cupbearer. Just one day in the cupbearer's life, I think we could call him Rob. (laughs) In a whole life of trials and whatever emotions and love one day he remembers a guy yeah there was a guy in prison who interpreted a dream for me and that becomes the most significant thing this guy ever did there's a widow who saves Elijah from a famine we don't get her name the point is God knows their names and God uses their work, even the thing that maybe if they were saying, like, what was the most important thing in your life? It wouldn't be like, one day I remembered that I met a guy in prison. <laughs> but God took that thing and brought it into his story. So we think about all those names who've left nothing for history to remember. Those people, those people who came out of exile, some of them were holding babies. There was a generation between the ones who came out of exile, at least one, maybe two generations, between the the ones who came out of exile and the ones who are there now in uh, in Nehemiah 7. We don't get their names. We don't get their stories. And yet, God uses them to continue along the story. So I think this way of thinking takes a whole lot of trust. Could you just imagine with me a a timeline of of Christian history from the inauguration of the church till now? And like, just zoom in on any year. If you're zoomed all the way out about 2,000 years, zoom in. Let's say 1258. Zoom in. In that year, there are faithful spiritual mothers and fathers. There are faithful missionaries and pastors and deacons. Most of them, almost all of them, do not have anything about them written in a history book. Their names have been lost to, to, the his, to history. Their stories have not been remembered. And yet, here we sit in a long line of generations passing the faith on to other Generations. We are here because of them. And we are here, and the work isn't done. But it is our job to pass along the gospel to other generations. Trent, do you want to uh, put up the third picture now, please? So maybe you have a book like this. I don't know if you do or not. Um, This is uh, Collected Poems by Wendell Berry. And... uh, (laughs) So the, do, you, do you guys have anything like this? Like, Do you see how it just opens to? I've read this, this one quite a bit. This is a poem called Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. I won't read the whole thing to you. Uh, but there's just this, this line where he says, invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. So I want to call us to think about what it would look like to plant sequoias, to take on this metaphor of investing in our church, investing in the kingdom by telling other people about Jesus, investing in your family. And I just want to say to you know, single people in our church, invest in the families of our church like we're planting sequoias. We are in this in-between time. Just like everyone always is, but I think maybe we feel it a bit more because we've planted something the church. We've also planted, we also have lots of kids running around. We are invested in things that we cannot have control over in the long run, and we must trust God with it. You know, there, there's, there's just like we, we're in this spot where there's no going back. We've already had the kids. They're already here, but also maybe it's like you've already got that degree. You've already you're ten years into that job, and this in between uh, space can can cause anxiety. Especially in our society, Uh, we see almost like this personal crisis because it feels like like we come to this moment where like what am I doing or who am I and where is all of this headed? I've devoted 10 years of my life to this thing, and does does it even matter? I think think a lot of us are plagued with this sense of we could be doing more, we could be doing better, and on and on and on. I think these kinds of questions haunt us today. I have a visual aid. (laughs) This is a uh, black walnut tree, a sapling that started growing in our yard over the past couple weeks. My mower's broken. So some of... (laughs) some of them have a uh, some of them have a chance This is where I want to inspire you today. Are you ready? I don't know if Church of the Redeemer will grow or if we will win the lost for Christ. I don't know if this church will be here when our kids who are running around are looking for a place to take their kids to church. I can't even promise you that if we teach our kids the gospel, they will believe and trust Jesus. I don't know that, I mean, this tree is going to get thrown away. I don't have space for a black walnut. (laughs) So I don't know that the sequoia that we plant won't get mowed over as a sapling or get cut down after a few years or in, in some more distant future get burned down by a great fire. But what I what I know is Christ and Christ crucified. So Jesus taught us about the kingdom. He brought the kingdom by healing the sick and casting out demons, and even showed his disciples a little bit of behind that veil that separates heaven and earth uh, on on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he revealed himself in all of his glory. And even though Jesus in his truest self, is this radiant, glorious, majestic God-man. He goes to the cross. So he is the Almighty One. Just two words together, Almighty. He has all the might. And yet he lays down his life to trust the Father. So about that same time that Jesus trusted his life to God, went to the cross, and planted his body in the ground, a seed in California went into the ground. General Sherman. Me and Danielle got to see General Sherman on our road trip uh, honeymoon. It's about a 2,000-year-old sequoia. So we know that Jesus planted himself into the ground, and then rose again on the third day. Praise God, right? The resurrection from the dead is central to the Christian faith. Paul even says that without the resurrection, that our faith is worthless, and we should be pitied more than everyone. But this is where I think the story gets a little crazy. So Jesus resurrected from the dead and then hung around for a few days teaching some things. He taught his disciples some final lessons, and then he went away. <laughs> he, he just left them. And I want to, maybe I have a reputation for pushing metaphors too far, so here we go. Uh, <laughs> so Jesus' resurrection is like the sapling poking its head through the dirt, just a little thing like this. It's fragile. It can be trampled on and killed. A strong wind could blow it over. And he just hands it to his disciples and says, Here, this is the kingdom of your inheritance. All the promises that God has spoken throughout all the Old Testament fulfilled in me, and here you go. Now go wait in Jerusalem for a gift, for one that will help you. I just can't imagine standing there, like, holding this fragile little thing, thinking, like, no, us, like, you're trusting this to us? This is insane. You're the one who just got out of the grave. He hands them a sapling and the Holy Spirit. And then the history of the churches, one generation after another, just showing up, investing their time and their money and their influence, giving their love to one another for a vision. Century after century, brothers and sisters in the faith have given what they had to work toward this vision of a kingdom. And we know that the history of the Christian church isn't clean. Sometimes they didn't give enough. Sometimes they gave reluctantly. Sometimes uh, people in the church were down like right wicked. And there were times where it seemed like maybe an axe was laid at the base of that tree. And yet here we are, as we read, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that we are joined by in a symbolic way as we take communion this morning. Brothers and sisters, on every continent around the globe this morning. So as we give our time and our money and our energy, it's tempting to think that no one sees us, it's tempting to think that our work doesn't matter, but there is another list of names, and if you are in Christ, your name is on this list. The Bible calls it the book of life. And what the book of life doesn't say is like 30 people from Church of the Redeemer. It says Matt and Meredith, Laura, Stuart. So we don't get our names in this book because of our work. Our names are in this book because of the grace of Christ for us, that his kindness has led us to repentance. And that we've trusted our lives to him and our eternal home to him as well. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works. That's always an amen line. That is settled and done. And yet, our work doesn't go unnoticed or unrewarded. The Bible tells us that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving his saints by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance you of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy but will be imitators of those who inherit the promise through faith and perse- perseverance. So I hope we can see this what it might look like for us to plant sequoias which is to invest in the lives of a people and a church and a kingdom and then to trust God with the outcome of that work. So Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 7 and, and 9. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co workers, you are God's field, God's building. So just one more time, this is what we're called to do: to plant, to water, to trust God. We know that God is the true farmer spreading the seed. We are, as, as Paul reminds us, his field. Our children and our church and our, all of our work are in His hands. And I hope that this encourages us today because the, the world is dark and confusing. It always has been. We should remember that. But I mean, it just feels like, and maybe some of you aren't as engaged in this sort of thing, but it feels like every article and podcast and anything I hear is about how the church is in decline. Church is declining. What are we going to do? Can the church survive this moment? What about false teachers and what about wickedness and abuse and all the sin that we see in the church? And in these kinds of moments, it can feel like the kingdom of Christ is just this fragile sapling. We are called to remember that generations came before. They showed up. And like Moses, they died without seeing the promised land. And, and those who have been faithful in generations before, their names may or may not be written in any history book, but they are written in God's book of life. So may we too give all that we have to give, knowing that in 2,000 years, black, black walnuts don't live that long. <laughs> but in 2,000 years, the sapling that we planted may be a great tree. And we can ultimately trust that God is building his own kingdom. We trust that our names are written in God's book, that we will receive a reward for our labor by El Roy, the God who sees me. On the night when he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread after the supper and gave thanks and broke it gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, this cup is the New Testament, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. As we meditate on this meal today and prepare our hearts to take communion, we realize that Jesus, by going through the cross, emptied himself of all of his power, of his right to be equal with God, that he invested himself and trusted God to bring about resurrection. What we eat, what we take into our body every time we take communion is a, is a reminder that we are investing in a kingdom that we can't make but will come by grace in the end. We are trusting him that we will sit again with him. He will He will eat this meal with us. Um, so meditate, confess, uh, confess your sin, your doubt, bring it to the Lord as you prepare your heart to take communion today. Um, the communion meal is for, uh, for believers in Christ. It is like a family meal that unites us around the gospel which has saved us. Uh, if you're with us today and, uh, and you have not placed faith in Christ and trusted your life to him, um, the call is uh, for you to take uh, Jesus by faith to receive salvation from your sins, uh, to be uh, brought into a new life in him and to be united with the church. Um, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus, what Christians believe, and um, any concerns you have. Uh, please consider that as uh, as a Christians take communion. Take the time you need to examine your heart. The Bible calls us to examine our hearts every time we take the meal. There is no hurry here. Uh, take the time to examine your hearts. And when you're ready, go take the bread and the wine. Um, Go back to your seat, and we're going to sing a final song together. Um, Take the time you need